morning comes from Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. Genesis 1 and verse 1. Please hear now the Word of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity which we can gather here this morning because we love you and your son, Jesus Christ. He has saved us by his blood and by the empty tomb. We thank you that now you have seen fit to preserve your word, your revelation for us in which we can study. In fact, we study a book that was penned 3,500 years ago. We don't turn this morning to fad. We don't turn this morning to something new and exciting, new on the horizon, but we turn to timeless and tested truth. A truth in which our society would claim is a myth. A truth in which our culture would claim is false. And yet we know differently, for you have revealed it to us. And so help your truth to root itself firmly into our hearts today. That when we leave this place and we are besieged by the enemy and the lies of this world, we shall have our firm foundation upon your word. For it's in it we learn of you. So help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Dave was testifying just a moment ago, the universe is big. You, of course, know that Our sun, which is a star, is bigger than the earth. In fact, it's a million times bigger. You could take a million of our earths and put it in the sun. The sun is very large. But it is not the largest star in the galaxies. In fact, we have discovered a star that is not only larger than our sun, but this star is the size of our entire solar system. That you could take our sun and place 9 billion of them in the star Canis Majoris. Or if you like, you could take one quadrillion Earths and place it in that one star. The universe is big. The universe is also complex. Do you know if you took all the DNA out of your body and you piled it on this pulpit, it would be about the size of a standard size ice cube. And yet, if you took that DNA, which is in you, and you begin to string it out, you would be able to take that DNA from this pulpit to the sun and back 400 times. The universe is complex. So where did it come from? I mean, how did we get this, what we have today? All all the massive size and the incredible and unfathomable complexity of it all. There seem to be two theories. One suggests that, that matter has always existed. That matter, that things are eternal and it just kind of changes as the ages pass. There is another theory, which I subscribe to and I trust that you do as well, that matter is not eternal, but God is. And God has created it all. These two ideas collided in a wonderful story told of the 17th century mathematician and philosopher, Sir Isaac Newton. 
You see, he had a mechanical replica of our solar system with a, with a ball there, an orange ball representing the sun, and on various lengths of rods, he had these little spheres rotating around the sun, and, and all the planets were geared up by cogs and belts to make their orbit around the sun uh, work in perfect harmony. Well, Sir Isaac Newton had a friend visit, an atheistic friend who came by his study while he was examining this model, and his atheistic friend marveled at this device, and he said, Mr. Newton, what an exquisite thing. Who made it? Newton, without even looking up, said, nobody. Nobody, he replied. That's right, said the scientist. I said, nobody. All these balls and cogs and belts and gears just happen to come together. And wonder of wonders, by chance, they happen to begin revolving in their set orbits with perfect timing. Of course, the philosopher was confronting this idea that we get all this wonderful complexity simply by time and chance. And that is the other idea. The late, great... Professor of Harvard University, Harlow Shapley, has famously said, some people piously proclaim, in the beginning, God. I say, in the beginning, hydrogen. Those seem to be our options. In the beginning, hydrogen, or in the beginning, God. I think we should probably look for an answer. I'm going to look in the book of origins called Genesis. That's what Genesis means. It simply just means origins and beginning. In fact, we're going to begin a a study through a portion of this book beginning today. We're going to study through what has been called primeval Genesis. It's simply the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis in which kind of the history of humanity is laid out for us. We see really four great events in those 11 chapters. Creation, the fall... Um, the, the flood, and then the scattering of humanity around this world. The second part of Genesis from chapters 12 through 50 is usually called patriarchal Genesis. And this tells us not the history of humanity, but really the history of a family. And there are not four great events, but four great individuals. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then on to Joseph. And so, But we're going to focus in on Genesis chapters 1 through 11. This book of origins. And in it we shall see the origin of the universe. The origin of life. The origin of the human race. The origin of work. The origin of marriage. The origin of evil, punishment, science, language, music, tools, government, culture, nations, religion, and the chosen people of God. All within these 11 chapters of this great and glorious book. We shall also discover rich and incredible theology. In fact, many have rightly said, I believe, if they had two books of the Bible, they would take a gospel and the book of Genesis. For in the book of Genesis, you really find every key doctrine laid out for us. We understand who God is in creation, humanity, and sin, redemption, and judgment. It's all here in this glorious and wonderful book. I'm excited to study it. I hope you are thrilled as we consider our God in this ancient and glorious text. Its author is Moses. Moses wrote this book. In fact, the Bible tells us that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Now, if you've been to college, your professor will tell you that Moses didn't write the book. That it was a number of different authors that wrote different pieces and different myths were all kind of attached together. And one day we got the book of Genesis. Well, there came a fellow one day named Jesus. And Jesus told us in Luke 24 that Moses wrote the book of Genesis. In fact, wrote the first five books of the book of Genesis. And as Pastor Mark Driscoll rightly says, Jesus is smarter than your professor. And so I'm going with Jesus on this one. The author is Moses. The reason Moses is writing this book is he's leading the people of God out of Egypt into the promised land. 
And so he wants them to understand the land in which they are going is good and wonderful because of the one who made it. And he wants them to know that this land is a land created by God himself. In fact, he's just not one of many gods, for they were emerging out of 400 years out of this polytheistic culture. And so Moses wants to go to the very beginning and announce to them that their God is not simply their God, but he is the only God. He's the God of all creation. And so he begins to unfold for them what God has done in the beginning. And we see here in Genesis chapter 1, as you are well aware, the the account of creation laid out for us. And we shall, if God is willing, take the next three three times we're in the book of Genesis and study through chapter 1 and explore God's act of creation. We shall see it, it will contradict the current scientific consensus, it seems, that of evolution. Many people in our culture believe that life came from non-life. That is, somehow non-living matter brought forth life. This, of course, has never been replicated. It's never been seen. It's never been proven. We're going to have no idea really how that could happen. It's just taken by faith. That somehow non-life, like this pulpit, something that's not living, gave birth, if you will, to something that is. And that's, that's the foundation upon which evolution stands. And then, and then it, it argues that that life, which is very primitive, gave form to higher species. And each species evolves into a, a more higher ordered species. This is the argument that we see throughout our land, throughout the world. Now, I certainly uh, will reject that. I hope you would as well. I don't think we could uh, line that up with the account we find in the book of Genesis. We do believe, however, what's often called horizontal evolution. Not that one species leads into another, but if you have a black moth and a white moth, a black moth may be better adapted to its environment, and it may survive, and the white moth may go extinct. So we believe in that type of evolution, but we don't believe moths become dogs, right? And we don't believe dogs become people. Um, we believe moths become moths, and, and dogs become dogs, and people become people. That seems evident to me, and somehow we're the dumb ones. Um, but we're not only the dumb ones, we're evidently the dangerous ones. Because in 2007, for instance, the Council of Europe, which oversees the human rights standards in Europe and enforces the decisions of the European Court of Human Rights, declared creationism to be a threat to human rights. The resolution was passed by a two-thirds majority with much applause in the auditorium. It is, I quote, the Parliamentary Assembly is worried about the possible ill effects of the spread of creationist ideas within our education systems and about the consequences for our democracies. If we are not careful, creationism could become a threat to human rights, which are a key concern of the Council of Europe. I find that interesting, that creationism is understood to be a threat to human rights when it is this worldview that affirms the value of human life. It's the opposite worldview that affirms that human life came about by time, chance, and accident. And there is no inherent value, dignity, or worth in human life. But it is creationism which affirms that human life is a special act of creation endowed by its creator with value, with dignity, and with worth. And so if there is any worldview that I would say would protect human rights... It would be that which does not argue that we evolved from non-living matter and and through a number of stages, but that argues that that human life is God's special act of creation. In fact, I believe uh, this is the only tenable view to hold to a morality. In fact, one evolutionist, I think, honestly writes, 
The position of modern evolutionists is that morality is a biological adaptation, no less than hands and feet and teeth. I appreciate that when someone says, love thy neighbor as thyself, they think they are referring above and beyond themselves. Nevertheless, such reference is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival, and any deeper meaning is illusion. And so one Christian author, I believe, rightly wrote, with a wave and an imaginary wand, the Darwinists sweep God out of heaven and Christ off the earth. Then they go to the classrooms of the nation and say, respect each other and do good and wonder why kids kill each other like animals. If we teach them that we are animals, I think we'll act like animals. And it's only creationism that argues that we are not, that we are God's special act of creation. And so here we see in Genesis 1 an alternative explanation of how we get things, an eternal God who creates us. Now let me say before we get into this text that Genesis 1 is not a textbook. It's not going to answer every question that we want. It, it's, it overlaps in the field of science, but does not explore every aspect of science. For instance, if my beloved wife kisses me, I could describe that kiss as being caused by neck muscle movements, reducing the distance between two pairs of lips, a reciprocal transmission of carbon dioxide and microbes, and a contraction of the orbicular muscles. And I would be correct. I would also be pathetic. Right? <laughs> Because there is deeper meaning. There are more important truths that we're trying to get at. Well, Genesis 1 is not trying to get at the truth of specifically how we get everything we get, but more precisely, who caused it? Who brought it about? I suggest to you that the the subject of Genesis chapter 1 is God himself as our creator. As has already been said to us this morning, the Bible tells us in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies above his handiwork. God made it. Therefore, friends, stand in awe of him. And so let's look at this ancient text, the very first words of the Bible. And yes, I'm going to preach an entire sermon on this one verse. James Boyce, a great hero of mine, preached nine. So consider yourself fortunate this morning. Three points as we look in verse one. Number one, God exists. Number two, God creates. Number three, God creates everything. First of all, God exists. The Bible tells us here, in the beginning, God You notice that it assumes God's existence. It does not attempt to prove that God exists. It does not lay out for us philosophical arguments as to why there is a God. It's simply just declared. God is, in fact, mentioned 35 times in these 31 verses of Genesis 1. The focus is on God. He's called Elohim here, which is often the name that God is given when he's uh, in relationship to creation. He's called Elohim when he's talked about in relationship to people that he that are not his special acts of love, if you will. When God is talking, when God is referred to, when he's referring to people whom he has a relationship with, his name is often used as Yahweh, or the Greek translation Jehovah. So in some, some sense, God has two names, Elohim, which is his general name, and Yahweh, which is what we call his covenantal name. And, and that makes sense. I, I have two names, if you will. And many of you call me Pastor Stephen. Um, my wife does not, right? My children do not call me Pastor Stephen because I'm not leading a cult, right? And I'm, they're not going to follow me around and, and hail me as Pastor Stephen. They call me Dad, right? They call me Stephen. In fact, I know we've, we're becoming friends when you drop the title, right? Because we don't give titles to our friends. And I go from Pastor Stephen to Stephen. The same way with God. In a general sense, he's referred to as Elohim. But when he gets down to people whom he knows who he has that relationship with, they call him Yahweh or Jehovah. 
But here we see in relation to creation that God uh, is referred to as Elohim when it says in the beginning God. And what we know, first of all, from this is that God is self-existent, right? In the beginning of what? Well, not God. God has no beginning. In the beginning, God created. So this is a reference to the beginning of creation, not God himself. The Bible says in Revelation 21, God speaks saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Right? He is the beginning of everything, but he himself has no beginning. Psalm chapter 90 says, before the mountains were brought forth or ever, or you had ever formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And so friends, God has existed forever. Before there was beginning, there was God. He, has, he is self-existent. Nothing has made him. He is the only thing that has not been made. He is the origin of all things except himself, for he has no origin. He has existed forever. Theologians have a word for this, like they have a word for everything. It's called the aseity of God, that he is, exists in and of himself, that, that he has life in and of himself, and that way he can give life. Jesus affirmed this in his high priestly prayer. In John 17, when he prayed, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so God has his existence in himself. You and I have been made by God. Everything has been made by God. But God alone has not been made. He has life in of himself. We also learn from this verse in the beginning, God, that God is self-reliant. Or maybe another way we can say it is that God is independent. In the beginning, there was God. And by the way, he was doing just fine. In the beginning, before God created, he didn't have any lack. He didn't have any need. There's nothing, no lack in God that you and I fill. Despite what some well-meaning preachers perhaps have taught you, God did not create because he was lonely. God did not create because he needed someone to love. God had perfect community within his triune nature. He had the love and the fellowship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus even prayed about it in John 17. He said, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because, note this, you loved me before the foundation of the world. And so before the world was created, before anything existed, there was the triune God. And within that nature of God, there was love being exchanged. In fact, I mentioned that he's referred to as Elohim here. It's interesting because that's the plural form of God. The the singular form of God is El. Right? In the Hebrew, they add the the suffix im to, to make a plural. And so he's called Elohim here. And the Jews say, well, God is being referred to in the plural sense in some way to ascribe him majesty. I wonder if it's a a very early reference to the Trinity, of the triune nature of our God that we'll see later on in Genesis chapter 1. And so know that God didn't create out of his need. God didn't think, well, I am really lonely. I am having a bad day. I'm going to create something. God is totally independent. So why did he create? I think he created because he's a creator. It's just overflowing. He didn't create out of his need, but he created out of his overflowing goodness and majesty and power and kindness. Everything that you enjoy in this life is the smallest reflection of the mountain of God's goodness. Every good experience you have is the, is a small drop of the deep ocean of God's beauty. He doesn't need us, but we desperately need him, don't we? 
He is independent. You and I are not. We are very needy. And God wants us to understand that we, we desperately need him. I wonder if that's why God created us in different genders. So that we need each other. So that we're going to depend upon others. To remind us that we're not God. That we need others. I wonder if this is why we need sleep. God does not need sleep. We need it. It's to remind us that we're not God who is alone self-reliant. That's why we need coffee. God doesn't drink coffee. At least he doesn't need coffee. Maybe he drinks it. It's delicious. But he doesn't need it. Right? Because he's not reliant on anything. Like you and I. We are dependent beings. But God is not. We need him. Friends, he's the point of your life. The point of your life is not your hobby or your leisure, your career, your job, your health, your accolades, your family. It's God. That's the point. He has made you. He is why we need Jesus. He doesn't need us. Jesus does not show up with a help, uh, help wanted sign and say, will you come join my kingdom? I need some help here. He shows up with a help offered sign. He shows up and says, you and I need help. But God alone needs nothing. He is totally independent. Well, we see secondly, not only that God exists, but we see that God creates. Right? In the beginning, God what? He created. Now, I mentioned there's, there's debate over origins, how, how we get things. The, the debate is God created it, or it all comes from a random outcome of time and chance. Right? It's one of those two options, I think. Either God made it, or it just made itself. Now, to be honest, I wasn't there. So I don't know how it all started. And you weren't there either, and nor were the scientists. But I know someone who was, named God. And he tells us. And so we can speculate, and we can deduce, and we can examine the evidence, but God reveals for us. His scripture comes and actually explains to us that it was him who made it. In fact, he would speak to Job saying, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimension? Surely you know. Who stretched out the measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? It is God who made it. God creates. And in his creative work, we see that he is powerful. Do you not see the power of God and the fact that not only did he will all this to exist, he actually had the power to bring it about. Your body, the clothes, the pews that you sit on, this building, the, the book in your lap, the street outside, the trees, the clouds, this, this state, this nation, this world, this universe. Everything that we see, everything that we experience has been made by God. Everything you can't see, bacteria and, a, and a, amoeba and, and dust and the arrangement of matters have all been made by God. And not only has he made it, but he's made it out of nothing, which is truly extraordinary. Because you and I can't make anything out of nothing. If we're going to make something, we need to have something in order to make something. Right? God doesn't need something to make something. We call this ex nihilo. He created out of nothing. There's no eternal Plato which God fashioned to get what we have now. But he actually created from nothing. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what was not, so that what, what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Right? He's made everything that we see out of nothing. He, he pulled a rabbit out of the hat without a rabbit or a hat. This shows us his power. I wonder if there's any problem in your life, any challenge, any difficulty. God is powerful to handle all things. He's made it all. In fact, I think this is the weakest point in the atheistic's argument. 
how do we get anything? They certainly have arguments against us, but they cannot answer the question, how do we have anything? Where did it come from? How did it get here? Well, the Bible tells us it's a powerful God who made it. It tells us he made it in the beginning. You notice that? In the beginning, God created. When, when was the beginning? Well, some want to say 5 billion years. Others perhaps would prefer 10,000 years. I don't know, to be honest. Uh, you may know. Maybe you'll send me an email this week to tell me when it was. But I don't think that's the point. Moses is wandering around with the people in the promised land, and I don't think they're so concerned about how old it is. I don't think they're so concerned, is this older than that, or how many years can we trace it back? I think the point is God made it, and it's better than anything else. Right? We like this planet. We're not trading it in for nothing. Right? You don't want to live on Mars, trust me. This is a good and glorious place which God has made. It's his gift to us. And he made it for us. The psalmist says, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. We see that the fact that he created, that he's powerful, but we also see that he's transcendent. And what we mean by that is that he's different from creation. God alone is unique. Everything else that exists has been made. God alone is, is different from creation. There is nothing other than God that is different from creation. You have creation and you have God. And those are your two categories. And so God is transcendent. Before God created, before nothing existed except God, there was only God. The Bible says in John chapter 1 and verse 3, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was not made. And so God is not part of this creation. I mention this because there are many in our day who would say that God is creation. Or at least that God is inside the creation, and therefore we ought to worship that creation. But friends, we ought not to worship creation. We ought to worship the one who has made it. He is not part of it. He is transcendent. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we're certainly glad that you have come to be with us this morning. But I wonder, how would you answer that question? How is it? How, how do we get what we have today? How have we got to this point? How did it all start, if not by God? I mean, when did it begin? How could it have begun if a personal God did not make it? This materialism, evolution, gives no explanation for why you are here. Do you not sense there's purpose and meaning in your life? Do you not sense that there's intentionality in this world? I appreciate what one evolutionist said. Dr. Robert Jastrow, director of NASA's Goddard Institute. He wrote, there's a kind of religion in science. It is the religion of a person who believes there's order and harmony in the universe. Every event can be explained in a rational way as a product of some previous event. The religious faith of the scientist is violated, however, by the discovery that the world had a beginning under conditions in which the known laws of physics are not valid and as a product of forces or circumstances we cannot discover. At this moment, it seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. For the scientist who has lived by faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak, and as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. What other explanation is there for how things begin? And why is it 
that nature moves us? Why is it that we're, we're struck by that which we see? It's not because it's made by time and chance, but it's made to display the handiwork of our God. And lastly, we see that God creates everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the phrase heavens and the earth, I don't think is necessarily referring to two different things, but I think it's just a, a summary. It'd be like saying from top to bottom or from head to toe, from, from beginning to end. We also include the middle. We're not just talking about the beginning and the end, but the whole thing. So when it says he created the heavens and the earth, we know that, that God has created all things. This is what the prophet Isaiah would say. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things. Who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. And if God has made all things, well, I think this tells us that God is majestic. I mentioned that our sun is a star. It is one of what we understand to be about 200 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. So in our galaxy, we think there are about 200 billion stars. We believe the Milky Way, at least we have discovered about 1 million additional galaxies. So our galaxy with its 200 billion stars is one of 1 million that we have discovered. Scientists believe that we have discovered about 1 billionth of theoretical space. And so they have estimated how many stars there are in the universe. The number is 10 octillion, which means nothing to you. It's a big number, isn't it? We know that. Let me tell you that a thousand thousands is a million, a thousand millions is a billion, a thousand billions is a trillion, a thousand trillions is a quadrillion, a thousand quadrillion, quadrillions is a quintillion, a thousand quintillions is a sextillion, a thousand sextillions is a septillion, a thousand septillions is an octillion, and there are ten octillion stars in the universe. It's ten with 27 zeros after it, which still probably doesn't mean much to you. And so I thought, okay, well, what is there a lot of? I used to grow up on the beach, I grew up on the beach in, in California, and so there was a lot of sand. You ever been to the beach and just pick up a handful of sand, right? How many, how many grains of sand are in your hand? Thousands, right? And then you look to your left and you look to your right and you think, oh, how, many, how many grains of sand? And you think out in the ocean, how many grains of sand is in there? And you think about every coast along this world. And you think about every desert in this world. How many grains of sand on earth is there? Well, believe it or not, scientists have come up with a number. <laughs> we believe there are seven quintillion grains of sand Give or take one or two. Seven quintillions. So there are ten octillion stars, seven quintillion grains of sand, which means next time you go to the beach, next time you're out in your kid's sandbox, just pick up one grain of sand, just one. And for every single grain of sand on planet Earth, there exist ten billion stars. Why? Why is it so massive? We can't even wrap our mind around it. Why has God made such a massive world? Well, he tells us here in Isaiah 40, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who crowned all these? Who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them by name? Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. It's an invitation to stand in awe of him. You ever go to, maybe some of you have been to the rim of the Grand Canyon, or maybe stood on the top of a mountain peak, or maybe just stood on the, the coast of the Atlantic Ocean, and, and you just look out into the, the massive size of the Atlantic Ocean, and there 
you, you kind of feel small, don't you? Right? No one goes to the edge of the Grand Canyon and says, I am great. Right? You go there and you feel insignificant. You stand on top of a mountain and you feel small. You feel humbled. And, but for some reason, we're drawn to those places. We're drawn to the very places that make us feel less significant. Because we're not made for ourselves. We're made to boast in someone who is greater than us. We're drawn to these places because we want to know that there's something better, higher, more powerful, more majestic. And friends, there is. There is one who has placed every star in the sky, all ten octillion of them, and he calls them by name. Not one of them is missing. And he is a majestic God. We have no idea how we can comprehend his majesty. We need to constantly put the majesty of God before us. I tell you, you ought to beware of preachers and books and churches that all you get is a steady diet of Sunday morning self-help and divine therapy. And don't hold out for you the majesty of God and who He is and where you fall in His plan. God is majestic and glorious, and this is what the stars were created for. Not to attribute to you significance, but to give it to God. It is an invitation to gaze upon the sky and worship the one who has put them all in place. He is majestic. But it's not just the, the, the outer universe that shows us his majesty. You know those stars, all ten octillion of them, are made up by atoms. In fact, everything that exists is made up by atoms. An atom, from what I understand, has a proton... And uh, in the center, and then it has electrons flying around it. The most simple atom is a hydrogen. Everything in the world, you, this, this pulpit, everything is made up by these things. If you took this hydrogen atom and expanded it, it's very small, but if you expanded it to where the center of it, the nucleus, was the size of a uh, um, soccer ball, 10 inches, that electron, the sole electron, would be the size of a golf ball. And it would be rotating around this nucleus, and a radius of five miles with nothing in the middle. Everything's made up. If you had, a, if you had that, that nucleus right here in this pulpit, there would be a golf ball-sized electron somewhere in Percival or Waterford or Leesburg flying around this thing, and empty space in the middle. And that's what everything is made up of. I wonder if God made it that way so one day when we develop these microscopes, we can look down on these things and think, God is majestic. Who knows his ways? Oh, but we also see that he's beautiful. If he has made everything, is not God glorious and beautiful? Right? We've already testified to the pig that's cooking out. God made that. You like pig? Praise the Lord we're not kosher, right? <laughs> Amen. We're so glad that's done and over with. Right? He created that taste. Cup of coffee. You like boysenberry pie, salty popcorn, a juicy steak? Why did, why did he create taste? And things that taste so delicious. This is beautiful. Or the sights that we have. Fresh snow on the ground, the changing of season, the sunset on the Pacific. God made that. Or the smells that you enjoy. A cup of coffee. Right? A bouquet of flowers. You know, that, that minutes following a spring storm, that smell. Well, God made that. Because he's beautiful. Or the sounds, the crackling of a fire on a cold day, the singing of a trained voice, the words from a child, I love you, Daddy. God made those things because he's beautiful. The sense of touch, your favorite blanket, your spouse holding your hand, the wind on a hot day. God made that because he's beautiful. 
He made all these things. All this beauty is, is just around us. It's just, we're just overwhelmed with it. And somehow we miss it. Right? We go to the theater to be oohed and on, right? When all around us is the beauty and majesty of God. Right? And you've gone to the movies now and you have it in 3D, right? That's the big thing, the 3D. You know, we live in 3D, right? <laughs> I mean, this is three dimensions right here. You don't have to go to the movies to see that. It's everywhere around us. It's all God trying to draw our attention. And perhaps when we step foot upon that new earth, he will renew our sense of awe and wonder. Perhaps he will open our eyes and, and maybe our ears and our noses and our skin and our taste buds that we can truly appreciate the beauty for which he has had. But I appreciate what one author has said. He said, once a day I stop and look steadily into the sky and remember that I am on a planet traveling through space with wonderfully mysterious things above and around me and even in me. He went on and said, once a day I stare at a tree or cloud or a hamburger or, or a cup of coffee or a person. I am not trying to figure out what it is. I am simply glad that it is there. I wonder if we would develop those practices. I actually read that and, uh, yesterday. I was walking in through my front door and we have a little pot of uh, pansies. And I just stared, stopped and stared just to appreciate a pansy that I walk by all the time, the purple and white and green. God made that. Why did he make it in all those colors? She's beautiful. Because he loves us. Should we not learn to rejoice in what he's made? Should we not walk out of our doors in the morning with a sense of expectation as to what we shall see and experience in which God has made to show us his glory? For he is beautiful. Friends, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so what shall we do with this God? Well, I believe, friends, we should worship him. This God who is self-existent and self-reliant, powerful and transcendent, majestic and beautiful. We should praise him. We should live our life for him. We should find our delight in him. We should join the praise of heaven, which declares, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. We ought to praise God not simply because he saved us, but because he made us. Because he had the imagination to think of it and the power to accomplish it. And thousands times more, we ought to praise him for it. It is our invitation to know him, to know who he is, and to bow our knee in glorious adoration for a God who can do all this. Can we praise him this week? Will you not open your eyes and your sense of smell and touch and taste? Will you not see the handiwork of your God today? Will you, not, will you not experience that? Will we truly eat that pig for the glory of God? I mean it. Can we, can we rejoice? Is that not why he gave it to us? Not so that we simply rejoice in it, so that it would point us to God, who is 10,000 times better than any joy we shall experience upon this earth. Will it point us to him? Of course, this creation is wonderful and beautiful, and yet somehow it's rebelled, hasn't it? Somehow we all have rebelled against a God like this. We all have sinned. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want you to understand, if you want to know what Christians believe, this is at the heart of what we believe, that God has made us, but we have rebelled against him. Every one of us. But the glorious thing is that God loves us. And even though we have sinned against him, his son, who made all things, took on creation, took on human flesh, and died upon a cross. And Jesus died on the cross not because he deserved it, but I did. And all my accumulated 
unrighteousness, all my accumulated rebellion, which continues to this day. And all the punishment that was due upon it was placed upon Jesus Christ. And he suffered for me. Three days later, God showed that he received that sacrifice by raising him from the dead. And the Bible tells us, though though you are rebellious, if you would simply bow your knee to King Jesus, if you would place your faith in this crucified and risen Messiah, he shall forgive you all your sin. And he will not only give you this world, but the world to come when he fixes it, when Christ returns. Will you not come to him today? Will you not receive him today and be saved? In fact, we in a moment are going to come and celebrate the work that he accomplished for that salvation, this Lord's Supper. This is a meal for Christians. And so if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, when these plates are passed by, I simply would ask that you would quietly just not partake of this, but pass it to the person next to you. This is an opportunity for Christians to rejoice and to remember in what Christ has done for us. And when we eat of that bread, we will remember that his body was broken because we are sinners and he loves us. And when we drink of that cup, we will remember that his, his blood was spilt because we have rebelled and yet he gives us mercy. And so we come to this meal to rejoice. Not simply in that God has made us, but that God has remade us. For if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. And he is recreating you even this day and shall complete that work when he steps foot upon this earth again. And so we come and we're going to worship him through this meal. And as we've already alluded to this morning, the scripture tells us that when we come to this supper meal, we ought to examine ourselves. And so perhaps you have some uh, talking to do with our father. I'm going to give you in a moment an opportunity to talk to him about your week. And perhaps there's something that you need to confess to him. Perhaps there's something that you need to uh, say you're sorry for. And know that he will forgive you this whole meal is a celebration of forgiveness. But let's seek it. Scripture tells us, let a person examine himself first and then come and eat the supper. And so will you examine yourself by the help of the Holy Spirit even now as we pray silently?